0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Roberta Rosenthal Quall, who teaches at DePaul University College of Law, here to talk about her new book, *The Myth of the Cultural Jew: Culture and Law in Jewish Tradition*, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press and just released in paperback. Bobby, welcome to New Books. Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Roberta Rosenthal Qual, who teaches at DePaul University College of Law. Here to talk about her new book, The Myth of the Cultural Jew: Culture and Law in Jewish Tradition, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press and just released in paperback. Bobby, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you. So, Bobby, what do we mean when we say, you know, that person is a cultural Jew? Uh, and what do you mean when you say that? Actually, the idea of a purely cultural Jew is a myth.
1: <laughs> right. Well, that's that's a sixty-four million dollar question, right? Because when when I say that a cultural Jew is a myth, oftentimes people will say, "Are you telling me that I'm a myth?" <laughs> so um, that's a great that's a great opening. Um, the reason that I argue in in my book that cultural Judaism is a myth is because the idea of law, and in this case, we're talking about Jewish law, although I would argue um, as a legal academic, what I'm about to say applies to any type of law, any system of law, but the idea that law is an entity completely separate, divorced and apart from the culture that produces the law, is really that is really the myth because any legal system is influenced by the surrounding culture. And also, the culture is influenced by the law itself. And so there's this um, really interesting synergy between both law and culture. And when you think about it, it's not surprising, because both law and culture are really products of, of human um, enterprise, you know, humans create the law, humans create culture, and therefore, the, the synergy between the two shouldn't really come as a surprise. I think when we're talking about Jewish law, in particular, known as halacha, there's another myth. And that other myth is that the law comes from from divine, okay, and I'm not asserting that that's the myth, okay, that is the position of the Jewish tradition. The law comes from 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 God, but I think what's what's sometimes seen as mythical about that is that the law is dropped down in the form that we have it from God. And even the most traditional Jewish authorities, um, people like Menachem alone the former Supreme Court uh, deputy of the Israeli Supreme Court, who was a very observant Orthodox Jew, will will has argued that the law came from heaven, but but it's up to man to, to, to forge it and formulate it and apply it here on earth. And so unlike what some Jews today may feel is um, the party line of Jewish law, namely that it all comes from God, what I'm saying is, well, it, it really has been implemented by humans and humans in their implementation and their application of law have been influenced by their surrounding cultures, both the cultures of the Jews, specifically Jewish culture, as well as the cultures of the host nations in which the Jews have lived um, for centuries, um, you know, since the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 um, of the Common Era. And so, again, to, to just to in short, the, the the myth here is that law and culture are two separate entities. If that is the case, then someone cannot simply be a cultural Jew because part of what they do as a cultural Jew in really does involve Jewish law even though they may not recognize the origins of those practices as being in the halakha
0: mm-hmm. so we covered a lot of ground there but i think yeah what you're saying is that law and culture are so deeply connected that when someone says, you know, I don't follow the halakha, the Jewish law, I'm just a cultural Jew, they're actually doing more law than they realize.
1: Exactly. That- exactly. Okay.
0: So 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 what maybe you could tell us a little bit about what is law and what is culture because I mean, did we used to think that law was just, you know, rules?
1: Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question. I think people do tend to think of law as rules, right? I mean, whether again you're talking about halacha, Jewish law, or you're talking about secular law, you know, law is very rule driven. It may be shaped by policy. Okay, we talk a lot about that in law school, what's the policy underlying, you know, a given law, but but at base, yeah, you know, what is the rule? What is the rule of law? How does it apply in our lives? I think culture is a more amorphous concept. Um, when we think of culture, um, generally speaking, we're talking about the folk ways, the customs, the people's practices, all of which have a very, very rich basis in the Jewish tradition. And so I I guess one thing I'd like to add at this Point um, is that if you think of the legal precepts, and then you think of the culture as being the amorphous practices of the people, the the custom which we call in in the Jewish world we call that minhag, um, and we keep we think about the folk ways together. The co- the custom, the culture rather, and the law sort of again sort of blend together to to really. Uh, exist in the content of the Jewish tradition, as we think of it.
0: Your book uh, uses the method of cultural analysis, uh, which is sort of a method of looking at law. We've kind of touched on it, but maybe you can just spell it out. What exactly is that?
1: So cultural analysis um, is um, a concept that was initially applied, actually, in cultural studies. Um, when cultural when when the legal world began to embrace Cultural analysis. It was largely in the context of certain areas of law. You know, I would say women's, um, you know, women's theory, uh, gay legal theory, um, critical race theory, um, and and what cultural analysis does is again look at law in the context of the culture that gives birth to the law, so that the law comes from the culture. But the culture, the law is also influencing the culture. It's a mutually reinforcing relationship between the law and the culture. Law produces culture, culture produces law. And so in the context of of Jewish law, Halakha. I think my first book is is the is the the only one that I know of that specifically applies the cultural analysis model to Halakha. And what I'm arguing here again is that the Jewish law that the rabbis have formulated, beginning with, uh, beginning with the you know rabbinic law in the early centuries of um of the common era, uh, the Talmud and all the commentaries after that. Th- those were not written in a vacuum. The rabbis, the Talmudic sages had their perspectives based on what the people were doing, based on what the surrounding culture were doing. Um, and that influenced their applications of the law. And it's been like that really, you know, as, as long as there's been a history or a recorded history of Jewish law. Um, and so, What I'm essentially saying here is we have to look at halakha or it's helpful to look at halakha as as a as a product of of human enterprise. Okay. I I am I do believe personally, I I will just say this for clarification. I do believe personally in the divine origins of the law. Um, I am a person of faith. But we don't practice, you know, even if one were to take the position that the Torah, you know, the written law, you know, came directly from God, okay, even, and that is the, you know, most traditional perspective on Jewish law. But even if you took that position, you can't live a Jewish life according to the Torah. It's been filled in with the oral traditions. Those oral traditions have been shaped by culture, and the culture has shaped those oral traditions. And so that's when I look at Halakha, through the framework of cultural analysis, um, I'm really looking at it in the context of the law having influenced by the culture and also um, the culture influencing the law. You know, it goes both ways. Law influences culture. Culture influences
0: law. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the sort of the meat of the book, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, most of your career, I think you've been a leading expert in intellectual property law. How did you get an interested in, uh, in Jewish law?
1: Well, it's actually not as much as great a jump as one might think. Um, so you are correct that. The first um I would say the first twenty years of my career as a legal academic, I wrote largely about intellectual property issues, but I especially wrote about authors' rights. Um the, the area of uh, within intellectual property that that I've really have done the most work on is an area called moral rights or the personal rights of authors. The questions that I would look at would basically be you know, how much can a work be changed, a work of authorship, you know, um, a poem, a work of literature, music, etc. How much can it be changed by someone other than the author and still be the product of that author or still be consistent with the author's message and meaning? Um, In intellectual property law, copyright law protects the economic rights to a work, by that, I mean you can't reproduce someone's work without the permission of the copyright owner. But there are many times where the copyright gets assigned and then the work is altered. The work is changed. It's, it's put in a context that, that the author would not have appreciated. That happens all the time. So the area of law that I wrote a lot about was this area of law. How do we know when the work has been manipulated, changed, distorted, or misattributed beyond the, what the author's message and meaning would be? It occurred to me as I was writing a book on this topic, which is called The Soul of Creativity, um it occurred to me you can ask the same questions of the Jewish tradition. Namely, how much can the tradition change and be changed and still be considered authentic and still be considered Jewish? And once I realized that, it was like an epiphany for me because I realized, wow, you know, this, this could be a very, um, you know, cool idea, you know, to explore because in our day and age of modernity, um, that's what we're seeing uh, going on in the context. I'm going to say really of all the denominations, but particularly the one Liberal denominations, meaning conservative Judaism, Reform Judaism, Reconstructionist Judaism, certainly Jewish Renewal. You know, we're looking at substantial changes that, you know, many would consider not authentic. And really, what sort of drove me to sort of look at this a little bit further um, was the work that I had done for many years, asking the same questions about copyrighted works when they get changed without, let's say, the permission of the author.
0: That's really interesting. I think that's a great lesson for um, you know young and old scholars out there. You 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 never know uh, how the things that you've been working on for a while you know if you just kind of think a little bit outside the box, you might be able to apply them to different areas.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Um, so that's a great segue in terms of if we take uh, an author's writing and intentions, you know, and, ch- and if it changes over time, let's talk about Revelation and the top-down paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- where does Jewish law originate, and and how did it origin? And how did it change sort of in the early de- in the early centuries?
1: So the origins of Jewish law are generally thought to be, you know, revelation in the Torah. Um, The concept exactly of what constituted revelation, what was said, how did it happen? There's actually so much discourse on this and there were really no clear answers. People have different views of what was revealed, whether it was um, the entire Ten Commandments in their entirety, whether it was just the first letter of the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which is the, the Hebrew letter Aleph, whether it was something in between, there's been Discussion and somewhat disagreement on whether Revelation was minimalist or whether Re- Revelation was maximalist, meaning was Revelation revealed with a did God paint with the broad brushstroke, broad strokes, leaving human beings to fill in the blanks. Or was it um, a, a more contentful revelation? And so throughout the, the, the centuries, there's been a lot of discussion um, in terms of in terms of revelation. Um, but, you know, as as the as the tradition has evolved. OK, again, um, in the more um, I would say the most orthodox circles, um, the the idea generally is that God revealed all the law, the written law and the oral law, you know, to Moses. Um, and again, different believing Jews have different perspectives on that. But certainly the origin of Jewish law, it lies with Revelation. That, that is undisputed. But again, you know, human beings have, you know, really filled in the, 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 the blanks and the, and the blank spaces. And so beginning, <clears throat> um, in the early centuries of the common era, um, that is when the oral law, that was either you know revealed along with the written law by God or simply embodied practices of the people um, as the centuries were evolving but the oral law began to be written down and the first codification of the oral law was around the year 200 CE and that's known as the Mishnah and then about 300 years later um, we have the codification of the Babylonian Talmud um, which was around 500CE roughly. There's also actually two Talmuds there's a Jerusalem Talmud as well but usually when people talk about the Talmud usually what they're talking about is the Babylonian Talmud and that's and and so people think well the Talmud you know gives the law you know if you want to know what the law is you look to the Talmud but again that's a misconception because anyone who's ever studied Talmud for even you know 10 minutes will will testify to the fact that, you know, studying Talmud is not like learning law codes. There's a lot of discourse, a lot of back and forth, and frankly, there's a lot that the Talmud does not reach a consensus on. So anything that the Talmud does not reach a consensus on, even according to the strictest interpretations of Jewish law, okay, the the most orthodox interpretations of Jewish law, anything that the Talmud does not reach a consensus on, you know, essentially is somewhat fluid. What happens, however, is that in the years and the centuries following, you know, the time of the redaction of the Talmud, again, around 500 CE, there d- began to develop a consensus on certain in certain areas and on, on certain topics. And once the consensus has developed in a certain way, given how Jewish law operates, it's very difficult to, to change that consensus. Um, and therefore, when we think of the origins of Jewish law, again, we go back to Revelation. When we think of the earliest codifications of it, we go back to the Mishnah and then the Talmud, really. But you really have to fast forward many centuries to really see the rhythm and the ebb and flow of of what is considered to be, you know, the, the Jewish law viewpoint on X, Y, or Z.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's jump ahead to to the modern period. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you view uh, the different denominations and their take uh, on the place of culture in the in the development of Jewish law.
1: Well, you know, all the denominations. You know, again, I I, I, I guess I would have to start by saying I, I do think denominations are a bit of a myth in and of themselves. Um, You know, recently I was talking, uh, speaking with a very close friend of mine who happens to be Orthodox, and and she said to me, I don't like the term Orthodox because Orthodoxy is a construct, and clearly she's absolutely right about that. Orthodoxy was a construct that sort of developed in the 19th century, um, and they were pushing back against reform, The you know, what was at that time, the nascent reform movement, so You know, not only are the denominations, in my view, constructs, but they also each contain, I would say, a very large spectrum, a range of practices. So people tend to think, for example, going back to orthodoxy, that orthodoxy is the most authentic. I mean, clearly, you know, if you're going to put people on a spectrum, orthodox people tend to be the most observant. That is that is for sure the case, uh, you know, as as a group. But I think the range of of. The range of practice and even I'm going to say theology among Orthodox Jews is pretty wide ranging. Um, not all Orthodox Jews, you know, think, walk, talk, and act alike. There are certain bottom lines that Pretty much they will all observe if they consider themselves to be Orthodox, you know, keeping Shabbat being a a wonderful example, keeping kosher being another. But there are there's some ranges, you know, even within those observances, you know, on the part of Orthodox. So you've got, you know, for example, you've got the um, Hasidic, including the the Chabad, the Lubavitch. Their practices are somewhat different from, you know, the rest of the ultra Orthodox known as the Haredi. You've got the modern Orthodox who have a different type of perspective. They believe you can have one foot in modern life and one foot in in Jewish tradition. You've got the open Orthodox who, uh, you know, the seminary is based in New York, um, you know, under the leadership currently of Rabbi Asher Lopatin. And they're beginning to push the boundaries, you know, on some particularly on some significant social issues. Conservative Judaism, um, that's the movement that I was, you know, born and raised in. Um, a lot of my thinking has been influenced by the conservative movement. You know, basically, the conservative movement's belief is that Jewish law is binding upon the Jews, but it's evolving and it's up to us to continually reinterpret it. You know, that gives rise to a huge range of levels of observance within the conservative movement. And I've written a lot about that over the past year in various op eds. And finally, you have reform, you know, reform, um, the movement of reform, you know, believes that Jewish law is not binding, unlike orthodoxy, unlike the conservative movement, but it's guidance. And so if you want to know how to behave as a reformed Jew, you certainly have to look at the law for guidance, but it's not considered mandatory. Again, the reform movement encompasses a range of people, some of whom, you know, might be very traditional in some of their practices. I know reformed Jews who light Shabbos candles every Friday night and keep a version of being a, a, a version of of kashrut, uh, certainly in their home and, and even out when they eat out, you know, to Jews that are fairly, you know, detached, you know, from the tradition. So I, I think in the modern period, what we're really seeing is um, because as a society, um, not just a Jewish society, but as a global society, we are so... Um, characterized by autonomy. People can make their own decisions. Um, we view authority differently from the way our ancestors view it, viewed authority. Uh, we're used to customization. We can customize anything we want, however we want. All of these social forces are really impacting the discourse of modern Judaism um, today. And, and the results, you know, have been attested to um, in various data points. Most recently, the 2013 Pew Report, which has been talked about a lot in many circles, but you know, though it though it is not a report that is, um, you can interpret the. There are things in the Pew report you can look at optimistically in terms of the future of, of Judaism, American Judaism in particular. Um, there are still causes for concern, and some of those causes for concern is that people just are not you know observing Jewish law, but they're very proud to be Jewish and they're very uh, much wanting to be part of the Jewish people. So again, coming back to the thesis of my book. Jewish culture seems to be alive and well. People have positive associations with being a member of the Jewish people. Jewish religious practice, not so much once you get outside of the most observant um, uh, forms of the religion. This book is about illustrating the connection between law and culture and why you really can't necessarily um segment that segment them out. It's not a book that is prescriptive. Okay. In other words, in this book I wanted to really illustrate throughout the history of Jewish thought how law and culture are deeply, deeply entwined. You know, I cover a range of topics from women's issues to homosexuality to the question of who is a Jew, does it depend on the mother or on the father? Um you know, the 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 scope is broad. I talk about life cycle events And I discuss why um, and how certain life cycle events that we just, you know, do as Jews were influenced by the cultures of, you know, Christian uh, Europe um, and how some of those practices found their way into our practices. Um, So this book is really more let's understand where we came from. Let's understand where our law came from. It's not a prescriptive book. It's not a book that is saying, okay, well, now what do we do about it? That's the book I'm working on now that I've just started. But this book is really more about understanding how the law and the culture interact with one another.
0: And most of the book is about uh, the United States. Uh, You do have a small uh, chapter about Israel. And I'm curious if you could tell us briefly how does thinking about uh, law in Israel and halacha, uh help us reflect back on what's going on in the United States.
1: That's a very good question. I, I, I included the chapter on Israel. It was a fa- it was an interesting chapter for me to write, um, and in some ways, it was the hardest chapter. Um, I've never I've been to Israel many times, but I've never spent a protracted period there. I've never lived there. I don't know the culture in Israel the way I know the culture in the United States, and so writing that chapter, you know, really required that I look at a lot of secondhand sources and speak with a lot of people. Um, because I, I just don't know the Israeli scene the way I know the American scene. But I thought it was important to include a chapter on Israel because Israel is so much a part of the culture of American Jews. And 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 so that's why I thought it was interesting to, to, to see how things are shaking out in Israel. After I wrote this book, interestingly enough, the Pew Institute that I mentioned a few moments ago did a study on the entire Israeli population, not just the Jewish population, and had some interesting um, data as well. The new study essentially confirmed um, much of what I wrote in the book and in that chapter chapter, which is in Israel. Uh, the majority of Jews, as we, as m- most people know, consider themselves secular. But secular in Israel looks different from secular in the United States. Okay, so just one example, one quick example that that that, that I can offer. You know, in a few weeks we're going to be celebrating Tisha B'av, which is the day, uh, the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. Um, if you're in Israel, even if you are not observant, you know that it's Tisha B'av. Many of the stores are closed, the movies are closed. The day takes on a completely different complexion. Whether you are personally observant. Um, the fast and the other um, rituals associated with the day. Secular Jews know that it's Tisha B'Av and they know what Tisha B'Av is about. In the United States, you know only the most observant Jews who are affiliated with observant communities, be they orthodox or you know traditional other traditional communities, are even aware it's to Shabbat. That's just like one small example. but I think that you know again when when the roots of the country are Jewish, when the, the time that you're living according to, which in Israel it's Jewish time, um when you know buses don't run on Shabbat, um you know all of that influences the basic cultural discourse. In Israel, regardless of the level of religiosity. Now, Israel, of course, has other issues, um, and and certainly all of us who are familiar with what's going on in Israel in terms of the struggles between the the Orthodox and and other Israelis, um, th- that's where a lot of the tension does play out, um, because you have political control of the state, you know, really being being strongly exercised at this point in time by 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 the religious jews and that creates its own you know difficulties between the denominations that While we have them here in the United States, it's not at the same level because it doesn't here in the United States it doesn't involve state control of of facilities such as the mikveh, which was a which was a big issue that was that is currently going on in the state of Israel just just to name one example. So it's different, but yet again, it's a Jewish country according operating according to Jewish time, and it's the historic homeland of the Jewish people. So by its nature, there's an osmosis that takes place even among the most secular of Israelis, who by the way all speak. Hebrew, and they can access the text in a way that most Jews here cannot because they don't speak or understand Hebrew. So there are differences in the in the cultural scenario between both of the countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Bobby, we've taken up a lot of your time. So any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and maybe you can fill us a little fill us in a little bit more on uh, what you're working on next.
1: What I'm working on now, um, as I mentioned before, is is um, a book that that I'm really gearing. <clears throat> um, I'm really gearing toward a very popular audience. I think the myth of the cultural Jew, and I don't know, Jason, I'd be curious about your take on this because I know you've read the book. The myth of the cultural Jew, I read it so that it would be accessible by a wide variety of of Jews, whether they have a strong or weak Jewish background. I wrote the myth of the cultural Jew to give people a basic education in Jewish thought, Jewish history, Jewish observance, and Jewish practice um in terms of the book that i'm working on now what i really want to get into is the discourse of how do we actually negotiate this um as a people outside of an orthodox context so what i'm really working on now is a conceptual a way to conceptualize the jewish religion that makes it meaningful um, and can uh, and 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 can be something that that people can embrace with their minds and with their hearts. But outside of the context of the law comes, you know, in its entirety directly from God, the law is binding upon people. I don't think outside of of the Orthodox community, um, law language resonates. I think tradition resonates. And so my book is really looking at how we work with Jewish tradition to um, increase education, to increase exposure, to increase observance in a language that's more comfortable for the vast majority of American Jews who are not comfortable with the notion of we observe Jewish law because we've been commanded to do so. I just don't think command resonates with, with the majority of Jews in, in in that way and I'm not being critical of people who believe it does resonate I respect it tremendously um, my own level of observance is, is really really more toward that end but it's not where the majority of people are today and I really want to do something to um, to showcase the beauty of the tradition and to give people some help for embracing it in their lives.
0: Bobby, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is The Myth of the Cultural Jew, Culture and Law in Jewish Tradition, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press and just out in paperback. The author is Roberta Rosenthal-Quall. Thank you for listening, and check us out next time on New Books in Jewish Studies.